0: So I'm going to suggest to you today um, that although it's typically widely appreciated that um, modern psychotherapy has its roots in ancient Stoicism, what is rarely appreciated is that um, what I think is that this cognitivism on which Stoicism and modern psychotherapy are based uh, have their origin in Plato. Um, And this is obviously interesting for for independent historical reasons. But I want to argue to uh, to you today that there's also something, um, let's see, that there's also something philosophically exciting about this, Um, and this is what I call the Nietzschean insight. It should become clear for reasons Uh, I'll I'll unfold later on. Um, The idea here is, um, let's see, that um, so. Because Plato thinks like like the Stoics and the cognitive psychotherapists that our pleasures are constituted by our beliefs. He also thinks that our pleasures, in some sense, try to make touch with reality. And this means that they can fail to do so. And this means that they can get things right and fail to get things um, right. So this means that they stand in need of scrutiny and therapy. So um, as they say in the mindfulness meditation scene, don't always believe what you think. Um, I think Plato is inclined to say, don't always believe what you feel. Um, So the structure of this talk is, um, it falls in roughly three parts. I'll try to uh, begin saying something very briefly about uh, cognitivism in in the Stoics and in uh, modern strands of psychotherapy. Um, Then I'll say something about Plato's cognitivism as developed in in the Philebus. And then in the final part, I'll say something how this uh shines light on what I call Plato's therapy of pleasure all right so um recent decades have witnessed um the rise of um the so called cognitive model in uh psychotherapy. This is how Beck formulates this Beck is the founding father of uh cognitive behavioral therapy, so the idea is very simple um, the idea is that given a certain situation what uh what decides what kind of emotional reaction we have to is. Is mediated by the beliefs we have or the cognitions we have so uh, one in the same situation might trigger different reactions different emotional reactions depending on the thoughts people have um, so as Beck says and this is uh, I guess in the first text on the handout um, at the core of psychological distress at the core of psychological <coughs> problems lies a thinking disorder now this is quite a radical uh, model as you might think um, so some of you have experience with Vipassana meditation might think that it's exactly the other way around. So you start with physiological sensations and this gives rise to emotions. Um, but Beck is a diehard cognitivist. All right. Um, now the idea here, um, if, you, if you have this model in place, is, um, is very simple, that we can alleviate psychological distress by changing our beliefs. Uh, and this is sometimes called cognitive restructuring. So um, the idea is very simple. You, you become aware of uh, the beliefs you have, you catch them. Um, then you check whether they're true, whether they make sense, whether they get things right. And if they don't, then you change them. Um, so if you have certain glitches in your thinking pattern, you just fix these glitches and then you'll be fine. That's the basic idea. Um, so yeah, you can also say change how you think, and then you change how you feel. Now I guess um, that it should, this should ring a lot of stoic bells uh, with many people in, in the audience. Um, and if you think so, yeah, you're right. And there's a, fa- a very simple explanation for this. Um, the early psychotherapists, the early cognitive psychotherapists, they were very fond of the stoics. <coughs> so I put some text on the handout. So they read them, and they sometimes even gave the stoic letters as homework for their patients. Um, and um, so I don't want to say too much about this because we we'll have a talk about this tomorrow. Um, what might be interesting is, is Alice's claim in, in T5, where he says, and it's probably not one of his most modest moments, um, he says that he's the one who managed to, uh, to save Epictetus from near obscurity um, and to make him famous all over again. Now, if what Karcher just said is that if that's right, that Hellenistic philosophy only really got off the ground in Oxbridge in in the 60s and 70s, or what was it, 1997, then maybe he's right, but uh, I don't know. Um, All right, so with this cognitivism uh, and its therapeutic potential in view, I now want to turn to to Plato, to Plato's um, Philebus. Um, And I want to suggest that we can find an earlier version of cognitivism in this dialogue. So there are um, some piecemeal indications that Plato was attracted to Cognitivism. So this is one of the texts on the handout. Uh, but I guess we, we only get like a real, proper, worked out theory of Cognitivism in the Philebus. Now for those of you who don't know the dialogue, uh, the Philebus is a dialogue in which Socrates discusses the good life with Protarchus and Philebus, two hedonists. Philebus actually leaves the dialogue before, it's get, before it gets properly started you might think because he wants to live his hedonism rather than talk about it. Um, and then Protarchus takes over the argumentative burden. And Protarchus I guess you can summarize his, his, his position uh, by saying that he thinks the life of pleasure is the good life. And he works with a very crude notion of pleasure. So according to Patarkus, um pleasure seems to be this bare, raw sensation. Um... All right, so for Plato's Cognitivism in the Philebus, I think it's, it's a bit buried in the text. It's, it's hidden in plain sight, as it were. Um, and my suggestion is going to be that it is working in the background of um, too much discussed infamous arguments for false pleasures. So call these arguments the, the false pleasure arguments. Um, now what's interesting, and this is something I'm going to argue, is that the, uh, these arguments map onto a distinction that's often made in the philosophy of emotion literature between two types of cognitivism. So on the one hand, you have something like causal cognitivism, according to which beliefs are a necessary causal condition for emotions, or in this case, for pleasure. Uh, In the second type of cognitivism, beliefs aren't merely a necessary condition. They are constitutive of the emotion, or in this case, of the pleasure. So um, Socrates gives us a first argument, which is actually deceptively simple. He says, um, both our belief and our pleasure are, let's say, propositional attitudes with content. Um, now if a belief, if something goes wrong with the content of a belief, then that belief is false. And if something goes wrong with the content of a pleasure, then that pleasure is false. So um, that's, the, that's the argument. Um, now what's interesting to see, and this is also a text I put on the handout, is that Socrates somehow finds it necessary to ruin the analogy. Um, so he actually says, isn't it the case that we often see that our pleasure goes along with false belief, and then Protarchus readily snatches the clue and he says, yeah, that might be true, but in that case, the belief would be false. The pleasure can never be false. Um, so I think it's important to see, and this is is often uh, overlooked in the literature, that this is a problem for Socrates' eccentric claim that pleasures can be false. It's not necessarily a problem for the cognitivism in the, in the background. Um, but nevertheless, Socrates wants to argue for this stronger claim, um, and he wants to suggest that, um, that pleasures can be false. And to do so, he offers an argument for a stronger kind of cognitivism, which I call uh, constitutive cognitivism. Um, so as Dorothea Freyde says, he doesn't want to work with questionable analogies he wants to go for a fusion between pleasure and belief. He wants to go for something way stronger. Um. All right, so what follows is, is, is a difficult argument. And there's a lot of literature on this, so I can't really do justice to it. So what follows is a, is a rough-and-ready uh, summary. Um, so Socrates says that the human mind can be compared with a workplace in which two people at work, two craftsmen, a writer, and a painter. Um, And we seem to be able to read this as saying that the the painter somehow is responsible for the beliefs we have about the world. And uh, the writer and the painter somehow depicts these beliefs and he creates the mental representations or fantasii we have about the world. So the construals we have of the world. Uh, and it is these re- mental representations, these construals, which figure centrally in our affective experiences, in our pleasures. Now this is clear in the case of anticipatory pleasure, um, which is pleasure about the future, as when, for example, right now I enjoy, uh, I experience Vorfreude, as, as the Germans say, uh, the fact that some future state of affairs is going to be pleasant. So the idea seems to be, uh, I take it, that our beliefs structure or conceptualize the way in which um, we construe the world, and these construals are mental representations, these figure in our pleasures. They are the content of our pleasure. Alright, so I guess I can skip this. Um, Yeah, so this ties in with with Graham Priest's talk, I think, um, where where you might say, The way in which the world appears to you depends on the way in which you conceptualize it. So Socrates' example is, imagine you walk in the countryside um, and you you, you wonder, am I seeing a scarecrow or a statue, or is that my friend, or is it just a a random stranger? This seems to depend on the way in which you conceptualize the world. So your appearances depend on your conceptualization of the world. So the idea is that um, every pleasure involves a mental representation. Um, so we take the world to hang together in a certain way, and um, this mental representation derives its propositional content from um, from a belief or set of beliefs we have. So Socrates sums it up very neatly later in the dialogue, and this is T uh, ten on the handout. He says, um, "Our beliefs, in fact, uh, or fill up. The Greek is ambiguous. Um, Our pleasures, with their condition or with their content, you might say." All right, so to illustrate this, um, this theory of pleasure and to establish the possibility of false pleasures, Socrates gives us the example of a man, so let's call him the lottery winner, um, who takes anticipatory pleasure in the prospect of winning a lot of gold. And this is T9 on the, on the handout. Um, so there's somehow something wrong with this man's anticipatory pleasure. Um, and because of that, Socrates is going to conclude that his pleasure is false, and as such, the uh, false pleasures are a possibility. <coughs> All right, so here's a question in the literature. What exactly, we might wonder, uh, is going wrong with this man's anticipatory pleasure? Um, so so w- in what sense is his pleasure getting things wrong? So traditionally, scholars have argued that um, his pleasure is false just because he's not going to win the lottery, as a, as, uh, as a matter of fact. Um, but it's hard to square this with Socrates claimed that um, bad people, as a rule, enjoy false pleasures. So this seems to suggest that we need to take some moral or evolutive component into account. Um, so this leads to, to, to a different kind of reading, according to which there's um, something goes morally or evolutively evative wrong, wrong with the content of this man's pleasure. So you might say his pleasure is rooted in a false belief, uh, for example, the belief that material possession is the highest good or um, you might say that his pleasure is rooted in the expectation that winning the lottery is, uh, is extremely nice, although it's actually destabilizing uh, or confusing. Um. All right, so before moving on, I want to say three important things about this, which I think tend to get overlooked in the, in the literature. So first of all, um, I think we can sidestep this notion of falsity. So um, Socrates himself is, is rather loose in his language. So sometimes he speaks of correctness. Sometimes he speaks of making a mistake. Um, and I guess we can, um, we can incorporate this. So we can let go of this notion of falsity and just reinterpret it as a pleasure gets something wrong, but we can still keep the cognitivism which is running in the background. So that's the first suggestion. The second suggestion is that Plato's cognitivist model is has a far wider scope than people typically appreciate. Um, So many people in the literature assume that it only applies to these future directed pleasures. But actually, Socrates explicitly says that it also works for retrospective pleasures and also for pleasures we currently have. Um, And he also applies it to fear and anger and other emotions. So this suggests that the account is actually, is actually supposed to be a real account of how emotions, how affections work. Um, all right. So um, let me see. So there's a final point, the third point, and I think this is most important. I think that the dichotomy between factual, descriptive, and evaluative readings is a false dichotomy, um, and I think that we need um, we need both the evaluative and the descriptive component. Um, so a in good integration of this, I think, there's textual evidence, but I'm not going to uh, to well to explore that here. Um, is that a pleasure can collapse or be diffused in two ways. Um, So if someone points out that something is wrong with the identification underlying my pleasure, that can diffuse my pleasure, but it can also happen if I somehow update my evaluative picture of of the world. So how does this work? Um, So let me give an example. So imagine I'm a diehard carnivore, uh, and I hate, I don't know, tofu burgers, and I think I'm eating a juicy, uh, a real burger, if someone were to point out to me that I'm actually eating a tofu burger, then my pleasure might somehow collapse. Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that would be what, what would happen in that case is analogous to the Buddhist snake rope uh, 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 analogy, right? So you just re describe how the world is, there's nothing evative going on, but you re describe the world, and then your pleasure is somehow diffused. Alternatively, um, someone might be able to convince me that actually um, the suffering of sentient beings is more important than my gustatory pleasure, and then slowly but surely I might arrive uh, at a situation in which I no longer, uh, in which I'm no longer able to take pleasure in eating meat. So this indicates, I take it, um, that our pleasures involve at least the descriptive and the evaluative belief. All right, so this is, uh, this is the final part. So let me quickly tie together what I take to have um, shown, or try to have shown. Um, so though Plato does not explicitly give us, uh, um, well, let's say it does not give us special treatment or explicit analysis of cognitivism, I think um, it is doing important philosophical work behind the scenes of the false pleasure arguments. Um, so as we have seen, Plato shares this cognitivism with the Stoics and with the CBT therapists. But unlike the therapists, who if you try to be cynical, only help you if you fit into one of the DSM-5 slots, um, and are also only interested in helping you alleviate your, your painful emotions, and unlike the Stoics, who seem to be the one and only real pleasure haters uh, uh, of ancient Greek philosophy, as you might find in T14, um, Plato thinks his cognitivism entails that we, um, that every single one of us, that all of us um, should examine our pleasures critically, even if um, or perhaps exactly because they feel good. Um, So after all, this is a conclusion they arrive at in the the end of the dialogue. Pleasure is the greatest imposter. So pleasure has a tendency to make us feel that we are experiencing something good, although it might be bad for us. So this is what I refer to as as the Nietzschean insight in in the introduction. Um, So the idea here is, I think, um, that we take our pleasures for granted merely because they feel good. So as Nietzsche Nietzsche writes, and the context is a bit sadistic, um, but I actually really like this insight of his. Um, Pain always raises the question about its origin. Where do I come from? What caused uh, caused me? But pain, in sharp contrast, uh, pleasure in sharp contrast, is inclined to stop with itself without looking back. All right, so that is to say, um, if cognitivism holds, our pleasures are constituted by descriptive and evaluative beliefs. This means they are charged with the extremely important task of getting things right. So it might be possible, um, paraphrasing back, that Plato thinks that at the heart of many of our pleasures lies a thinking disorder. Um, And I guess this ties in neatly with, with what we find, for example, in, in Socrates' description of, uh, of, of, of his philosophical task. So philosophy is, is the care of the soul. Philosophy needs to help us get rid of these thinking disorders, even if they give rise to good feelings like pleasure. Now this notion of getting things right um, can be impacted in at least two ways, and, and I'll have to be quick here. And this maps onto the descriptive and the evaluative um, beliefs underlying our pleasures. So on the one hand, you, you can get something like Nozick's context intuition driving the uh, experience machine thought experiment. So we don't just want to feel pleasure, we also want our pleasures to be rooted in the truth. Uh, we don't want our pleasures to be based on illusions. So that's the, that's the first suggestion. Um, but the second suggestion is that if our pleasures express our beliefs, then this means that they express our values, and then this means that they express our personalities or who we really are deep down in the, in the core of our being. Um, So if that's the case, um, then um, if we want to take ourselves seriously as as the rational beings we are, then we should be taking our pleasures seriously. Um, So this means, to conclude, all in all, um, that cognivism allows Plato to formulate the the perennial and deeply important insight, I guess, that we should inform our responses to the world, whether it be our beliefs or our pleasures, with the clearest and indeed truest possible view of that work, thank you.